When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is is Stephen Railston, and we're recording this episode on a Monday morning. And uh, not much happened over the weekend regarding Manchester United. Though, of course, there was big news. Sheikh Jassim pulled out of the running to buy the club. And I'm joined by my colleagues Samuel Luckhurst and Tyrone Marshall to dissect what that means to look at Sir Jim Ratcliffe being the only one left at the table now and what that could mean going forward. Um, but before we go any further, the pleasantries as usual. How are we, lads? No bad, thank you. No bad. A week off. I, I still. I'm just. I called his cap on. I still dreamt I was in a press conference and <laughs> a, a Manchester United press officer coming up to me and and saying how angry he was about the headline in a, a newspaper that wasn't our newspaper. It was a front page as well. The, the headline on that. So again, I think if you're an amateur psychologist, it doesn't take a great deal to work out what's what's going on there in, uh, in my mind. Who did United have of the club under Ranić? Was it Sasha Lenz, the psychologist at the Broadway? Maybe, yeah, maybe we'll get a, a po- an appointment yeah. with him. Yeah. Uh, did that you was have... incredibly realistic, that though, Samuel. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure it was a dream? Yeah, yeah. It, it did. It did feel very real. Anyway, it wasn't a lucid dream. Did you have any dreams or nightmares, Tyrone, across the international break? I, I had a nightmare on Friday when I ended up watching England Australia uh, by mistake. But yeah, other than that, all uh, all good on the. the Leaping from. We'll go straight into the takeover news then, gents. I mean, uh, Sheikh just seems said he was the dream owner for Manchester United, um, but he's not going to be because he's pulled out of the race. Uh, the club was put on the market uh, 11 months ago. It's almost one year since it was announced. Uh, the Glazers were exploring strategic alternatives, which obviously could include selling it. Um, that with rounds of bidding with Sheikh Jassim and Sir Jim Rackler followed. There's not been much since then, Samuel. There's been contrasting updates uh, across the months. Probably not much happening uh, worth reporting on. But this, for, anyways, for me, feels a bit significant now. We've had Sheikh Jassim pull out, uh, withdraw his bid, and now Ratcliffe's the only one left at the table. Yes, it's, it's the whole process, the whole story has been a classic case of less is more. There's been a lot of noise at certain times, I remember during a week or two off in June, there was this 
you know, frenzy online about, about something that was apparently imminent in regards to Qatar, and it wasn't. It was from some obscure account on, on social media, which sounds like it's a parody, but apparently that was the case. Fortunately, as I said, I was, I was off at the time. But when we were on the tour in July, we, we certainly started to get a sense that United were not going to be sold outright. Um, Ty and I spoke to someone who's very, very well connected on Wall Street and that 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 world really, and painted a, a much clearer picture than anything we'd in, encountered before uh, in regards to it. And then we spoke to someone quite high ranking at United who stressed again that that statement that came out about the strategic review did not make a promise that it was going to be. Um, a, a, a complete sale that it, they were open to investment coming in and I think a lot of fans because the top line from that same was United at the sale which was true at the time but because of that I think a lot of fans have always been of the mindset that they were going to get sold and I think it was as far back as February I was I was told that Joel Glazer and Avram Glazer are reluctant sellers and that stance has hardened um over the course of time and of course in, in light of the weekend's events a lot of supporters are unhappy about Sheikh Kassim's withdrawal and when you go back to his pitch and that um, that statement that he released on uh, I think it was February the 16th it was a compelling pitch I think for most Manchester United supports it ticked every box in terms of making the club debt free being 100% um, sale taking complete control of the club, you know, doing up Old Trafford, investing in the men's and women's teams, community projects, um, putting fans at the heart of it as well. I think that was uh, the slogan. The problem for a lot of fans as well was that it would have been a state-owned club if that would have come to pass, and a lot of fans were still opposed to. Qatari ownership on on ethical grounds. There was a, a note to Qatar banner that was, I think, in the away end at West Ham and and, and Brighton in May. And I would imagine, after what's happened at the weekend, that there'll be probably some more form of protests planned. I think, given what's going on in the Middle East, that that just feels really crass now. And you can't overlook what's going on in the Middle East in relation to United at the moment. Geopolitics, unfortunately, is ubiquitous in football now. Whenever there's a takeover, there's always an element of what about it. And of course, the this I think it was pretty quick. And after these statements came out in February, and a few of us like did our pieces and put our heads above the parapet and pretty much said what you know what we don't think should happen. And I was quite open about it from the start that I, I was opposed to Qatari ownership of Manchester United. I didn't like the prospect of both Manchester clubs being owned by states. I I think that's unbecoming. I think United in particular as an institution, they've always got to be, you know, be bigger than that, be better than that, although it was always in the hands of the Glazers. A lot of people were unhappy with that predictably. And of course, then you'd get the occasional bots come into your timeline, so I was informed. And there was one man who emailed um, a number of us journalists on the United B, and he sent us the same email. It was it was all about you know, well, this is greenwashing. So Jim Ratcliffe would be greenwashing because he's a petrochemicals billionaire. Um, 
you know, because there's all the talk of sports washing with Qatar, this would be greenwashing. Uh, he's he's a Brexiteer. He lives in Monaco. He moved there soon after becoming knighted. There's always a lot of what aboutery uh, where it concerns the the the, pos- the ownership of United, and it's always been quite a heated topic. And like, there are other things in in regards to it that, that we can't say um, because it will just you know, we, we could do without it really, frankly, in terms of how incendiary it can be because it is a fervent topic among United supporters. There will be supporters who are pro guitar, there'll be others who um who are anti it. I think really that there's there is an existing dichotomy in the United fan base because of that. I think it would be exacerbated um if if these protests were to take place, as I said, because of what's going on in the Middle East. You can't overlook the fact that although it may be moot the Glazers are Jewish. There are Jewish United supporters who go to games, who I've spoken to, who feel unsafe since what happened um, in Israel and the, 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 that massacre, which is just like unspeakably sad and unimaginably horrific. And there are also you know, aspects of Israel's retaliation in Palestine, which you can abhor as well simultaneously without taking sides. But where it's football and where it's geopolitics, it is always tribal, unfortunately. And the nuance kind of gets lost in it. And I suppose with the Qatari element, if a Qatari takeover would have taken place now, uh, which I don't think has really been in the offing for for quite some time, I've never had the sense that Sheikh Hassim was the favourite and I think his momentum was starting to peter out some months ago when it was apparent that the Glazers weren't going to um, go for a full sale. But had it happened, you can only imagine the outcry when leaders of Hamas, who are the terrorist group behind these barbaric attacks in Israel, are living in Qatar. And there have already been calls for the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, to sanction Qatar because they are giving residency to leaders of Hamas. It's, it is, you know, it's pretty, I mean, first and foremost, it's tragic what is happening in the Middle East and on a much more trivial element in regards to football, it is sad that the game has become that grubby where geopolitics is so rife. And you go back to the 2018 World Cup, the opening game, you've got Gianni Infantino sat between Vladimir Putin and Mohammed bin Zaman. Uh, well, you know, th- when when it gets to that extent, you know that the game is up for football, and you, I suppose you are swimming against the tide um, in terms of trying to keep it pure because the pureness ended a long, long time ago. And I completely get, you know, people have reservations about Sir Jim Ratcliffe's um, investment in United, but he has played politics. He he, as, as Ty said before we came on air, he saw which way the wind was blowing and realised that he wasn't going to get anywhere just trying to buy them outright because Joel Glazer and Avram Glazer absolutely do not want to sell United. So what's the compromise? And the way he's approached it is a compromise where it looks like it's going to be a 25% minority stake where he gets you know pretty good control of uh, apparently of the footballing operations. It, it's almost like the, the Glazers are, these, are the film studio and they've hired a director who's been given ample creative control with their project. Now, if that's the arrangement that 
Ratcliffe is in for. Um, and I imagine it would be because history tells us he is not a bit part player. And his end goal will be to take uh, full ownership of United eventually, whenever that may be. It, you know, it remains to be seen. But he's not just going to get involved in United, just have a seat in the director's box, watch what's going on and allow other people to, to make those decisions. He is going to want to have a big say in the running of the club because you look at his past ventures in sports, that's what he does. And I don't think that's a disastrous scenario for United. Um, I completely agree with... this scenario to a season tickle that last season, it would have sat your hands up for and I know the Qatar investment for all its, the issues that comes attached to it, a lot of fans have wondered it. But if that had never been in the kit chat, fans would be delighted, surely, with Ratcliffe coming on board and having a minority stick. They always needed investment. I mean, Gary Neville has talked too much in general, but at the start of last season, he wasn't talking as much about it. And he, he said at the outset, I think it was post-Brentford, that the club needed a new investment. The cash flows were that low. So that was always going to have to come one way or another. And look, I know there are cons with Ratcliffe as, you know, on a, on a moral standpoint. I don't agree with Brexit. I don't agree with someone getting knighted and then moving over to the tax haven of Monaco. Yeah, there's the greenwashing element that, that people will, will abhor as well. But sometimes it really, it, it, not, not, not so much a lesser of two evils, but when it comes to realistic options on the table, he has, he has played the politics there. He is not going to want to fail at Manchester United. He said on the record as well, you can't, uh, I think the quote was something like, you know, the, the, the prospect of failing at Manchester United is, is unimaginable. He, he does not want to be someone who is tarred with the same brush as the Glazers. And also if he is, his card is marked by the supporters um, amid the prospect of him taking full ownership somewhere down the line. He is not going to want to be synonymous with, um, although he's having to associate with the Glazers, <coughs> He is going to probably do as much as he can to separate himself from them, which is why one would imagine there will be some very key, tangible changes made on his watch. In terms of the fan base, I think it's fair to say it would be too simplistic to suggest all match goers wanted Sergio Ratcliffe and the online fans, overseas yeah. fans, wanted uh, Sheikh Jassim. But it's definitely felt like that over the last 11 months or so. Um, in terms of why... Qatar have pulled out of this bid then, Ty. I mean, Samuel's just touched upon some of it there and um, why Sheikh just seems backing out of the race. The words fanciful and outlandish were used for the Glazers' valuation of the club. Sheikh Jassim submitted an offer two times the club's market valuation. Um, but there was obviously an element of that and an element of Sergio Ratcliffe being a bit more savvy with the way he structured his deal. And that's clearly played into this, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it has, you know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of criticism of to Jim Ratcliffe floating about on online from fans. And I think it's, you know, this, this isn't now a scenario where it was Qatar or Sir Jim Ratcliffe. Qatar only wanted a full sale and that wasn't going to happen and hasn't been a prospect for months. The scenario really was Sir Jim Ratcliffe gets a foot in the door in 25% or they get investment from a faceless US hedge fund and, and private equity, which makes matters worse. If anything, this is, on those two scenarios, this is the better option. And I, you know, of course I get why fans want a full sale only, why that has been a campaign. Every Manchester United fan wants the Glazers out. There is no doubt about that. But it's been clear for some time that they weren't going to go. And yes, the valuation probably is fanciful and outlandish. Um, I think 
I mean, we never hear from them, so we'll never know, or certainly not in the short term. I think they will be very surprised at the lack of interest they got. And I think Rain will, will be very surprised and a little bit nervous of what it does for their reputation, to be honest, given how much interest they got in Chelsea. Um, you know, it, it was Rain doing Chelsea that convinced the Glazers to go with Rain. And, you know, I was told that Rain were telling people early on that this is going to be a doddle, this is going to be an easy full sale. And in the end, the only people they brought to the table were a guy who tried to buy United last summer and Qatar, who've been sniffing around United for 10 years. They didn't bring anyone else to the table. Why is that then? Is that the infrastructure of the club, where the club finds itself? Uh, or just simply the valuation? Probably the valuation, I guess. Um, they mu they un must have underestimated what the Glazers were Yeah, were I think so. For. And I think the, the auction elements of Chelsea maybe encouraged more people to, to have a look and have a go in the prospect of getting a deal. And Obviously, in the end, Todd Bolly did not get a deal. But there's, there's an obvious attraction, I guess, to Chelsea with London as well for people. Um, that, that can't be overlooked, especially for foreign investors. But, you know, had the Glazers just done a private sale, then the two people that are contacted first would have been Ratcliffe and the Qataris, and that's, that's what they got. Um, but like we say, I think, you know, I, I think Ratcliffe has, has played the game in a way, whereas Qatar haven't. Samuel mentioned the pitch before, which was a great pitch, but was also indirectly critical of, of the Glazers. A lot of it was essentially, we'll do what these lot haven't. And you, as unpalatable as it is, you've got to remember they're the people you're trying to convince to sell. And I don't think that went down particularly well with the Glazers. And I know Ratcliffe's been hammered. I think he said that the Glazers were, were nice people or were... I think he said okay, that they're the nicest people. They're, I think he called them gentlemen. Right, OK. He said he'd like to take Manchester United back to the top as well, which obviously implies yeah, the Glazers there's always, been... you know, you, you can't really make a pitch without giving away a little bit of where things have gone wrong. But he has played the game and kept them on side. Whereas the Qatari, the, the Qatari pitch was kind of like, well, you've made a mess of this, so we're going to sort all this out. And you've got to remember, they, these are the people you're trying to buy the club from. And I don't think that went down particularly well. Um, and, you know, as, as Samuel said, as we can before, Radcliffe sensed the mood was changing. And it's not, people should remember that Radcliffe didn't go into this thinking, I'm going to suck up to the Glazers and, and do a deal that will suit us all. He's, he started this process wanting to buy them out. He's not done because they wouldn't sell. What he's done is adapt his offer to make sure he's got a foot in the door. And fundamentally, that you know, if that's approved this week, United will be in a better position this Friday than they were last Friday. And I know the Glazers are still there and still about, and that's unpalatable for a lot of fans. But if they weren't going to sell, then the, the unfortunate reality is no end of protests are going to change that. We've seen that now over 18 years. And this is... this. It, it feels like the start, it feels like the beginning of the end, basically, that this is, there is an end game in sight now, whether it's two years, four years, you know, it, it depends how the deal's structured, but there is at least now a roadmap to the Glazers going and, and someone else owning the club. And, you know, as we've said, Jim Ratcliffe isn't buying 25% to have 25% of the voting rights on the next manager or transfer targets or what happens with Old Trafford. He's, he's going to get more than that. He's going to provide better on-the-ground leadership because it's impossible to provide worse on-the-ground leadership. So there are undoubtedly benefits and I know that it'll be hard to digest for United fans who wanted a full sale. But if that was never an option, which I think is pretty clear it's not been for a while, then this is better than what could have been the alternative in terms of, like I say, a faceless hedge fund propping up the Glazers and, and letting them carry on doing what they want. I know you touched upon it in your opening speech there and I don't want to make it 
political correspondent, Samuel. This is a football podcast, but it is good news that there's not going to be a sports washing project in Manchester, or a second sports washing project, I should say. Um, Same-sex marriage, still illegal in Qatar. There's concerns over human rights conditions, and we saw how hideous the conditions were there during the World Cup. So that can only be a good thing, and as a consequence of Qatar pulling out. Well, that was always... I, I, as I said, I stuck my head above the parapet and, and did that piece on the the, the day of the first deadline, uh, the, laying out my reasons why I would be opposed to that happening. It still didn't compromise you know, doing objective reporting after that and checking in with the Qataris and just just trying to be as diligent as possible. And this is this is one of the problems with football now. It's it's not just tribal in terms of supporters supporting their team, but the demographics there are so many and it's so it's so diverse as well which is is positive in one sense but it also can you know, there's a tipping point that it gets to very very quickly with things uh, with with matters like this i i don't think we'll ever get a reasonable explanation from the, the these qatari cheerleaders online as to why they abhor the prospect of some sir jim ratcliffe um having a minority stake in united or possibly becoming their own in the future. Ultimately, Qatar have come to prominence in football in the last what, 13 years, ever since they got the World Cup in 2010, which was ridiculous. It should never have gone there. Even Seth Blatter eventually said Qatar should not have got the World Cup. The World Cup last year was brilliant, you know, probably the best final ever. It was a great spectacle, great stories with Morocco getting to the semi-finals. You could have had great stories at a World Cup anywhere. And let's not forget that in 2018, Russia held it. And what did Russia then do four years later? They invaded Ukraine. And four years after they had been awarded that World Cup, which they also shouldn't have been awarded, what did they do? They annexed Crimea. You cannot overlook the geopolitics in football. And Qatar have clearly been emboldened to continue their ventures in football um, since they got the World Cup in 2010. They took over the ownership of PSG, I believe, in 2011. So that happened quite quickly after they were awarded the World Cup. And of course, United would have been the crown jewel in, in all of Qatar, really. That's what the nation would have been synonymous with had uh, Sheikh Hassim's bid been successful. But I've, I've always been of the mindset that a football club should matter more than just what goes on the pitch. And it's it's been unpalatable for a lot of United fans what has happened over the last 18 and a half years under the Glazers' occupation. Even though they've had some extremely successful times there um, during that, that period, it has always been in spite of the Glazers because, I mean, they, they treat supporters with, with contempt. We talk about investing in a football club they've never invested in it in a financial sense or an emotional sense uh, there's there's no goodwill to them from supporters whatsoever there probably was at one point i remember a long long time ago when united were at their pomp under ferguson they were probably premier league and european champions and you had um a, a fan had got some stick for going on MUTV and, and saying, love United, don't hate Glazers. And he got a round of applause from all the supporters there. So football is a very fickle game. And I know... That world existed? Well, that, that world did exist because Sir Alex Ferguson was a Manchester United yeah, manager and they were the, the best team on the planet. You, you weren't going to get any, um, any truculent supporters back then. That said, 
there have been protests during this during the whole time of the Glazers' um, ownership when United have been successful. The green and gold happened when they were champions and um, they'd reached two Champions League finals in a row and also they, they were quite well poised up until the point that season to to retain the league, um, but, but they didn't. And of course, last season, they had a successful season and it was to the soundtrack mainly of, of anti-Glazer rhetoric. So there has been a principled stance from a lot of supporters and that they have continued to protest whether the club have been successful or unsuccessful. But I don't think it should ever have come at the cost of just taking anyone who would just chuck money at it. Um, United fans sing about how hollow Chelsea's success is because it has come under Roman Abramovich. If they'd had Qatari ownership, they would not have been able to sing that chant. There'd have probably been a few other chants they'd have had to have ceased singing as well because they'd have been they'd have been hypocrites in terms of the reaction then Ty just to wrap up this segment are you surprised at some of the comments that have been made on social media I mean social media is a wacky place at the best of times but I mean there's been some people suggest this is the end of Manchester United how could this has happened I mean you look at the club's history the adversity it's always been there overcoming it the Busby babes just stupid comments really haven't there? there's, there's been some of those I think it's the modern world isn't it it's it's boom or bust there's no nuance in these decisions now. A lot of fans had, had set their hearts on a full takeover. A lot of fans um, had set their hearts on Qatar and a Kylian Mbappe and a multi-billion pound transfer budget. So, you know, I think that a lot of the reaction was, was based around that. Some of it will be based around um, the fact that it's not a full sale. But yeah, you know, there, there was fairly prominent online United fans and YouTube channels and whatnot on Saturday night declaring it the beginning of the end and and there'll be a serious force again when in reality this is as we said this is a step forward this is a step in the right direction and it's not the step everyone wants but it should start to improve things and yes it's probably going to mean more short-term pain for now because they are still there and like we say Jim Richard Jim Rackett's only got 25 percent but it is a step in the right direction and I think that's you know that's worth bearing in mind that it should it should actually eventually lead to something better. And we'll look at that a bit closer in the second part. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast. Now, Samuel, as you just said, they're wrapping up the first segment. We'll discuss Ratcliffe's bid in a bit more detail for 25%, but as you guys have both said uh, before, it's not just going to be 25%. He's going to sit in the director's box and not have any say. He's going to have some control. Uh, we believe we understand over football and matters to have more control and say transfers, first team recruitment, etc. And again, that can only be a good thing considering the last decade of decisions that the Glazers have made and the incompetence at the boardroom level having a fresh face and some new ideas can only be a positive. Well, Ratcliffe did an interview with The Times four years ago and he referred to the dumb money 
was his quote in regards to United, the way they've operated. He had a pop of Fred, I think, didn't he? Yeah, he, he, he said, you, you see, he, 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 he singled out Fred. <laughs> Which is he literally, a bit he literally singled out Fred, who, well, in fairness, at that point, he, he, it did look like a, a pretty dumb signing. And the hit rate, as far as recruitment has gone, I'd say maybe, you know, at the end of last season, under Ten Hag, it, it was looking pretty good. It's not now. It's looking it's looking iffy. And the, the key the key signings they made in the summer, Anana. One question is why didn't you sign him when he was available on a free when he left Ajax at the time you did? And again, the, there's a mitigation there. De Gea had a good season, and Ten Hag had he had De Gea. He had Dean Henderson to choose from as well. Still, so was a goalkeeper pressing matter? No. But then, when a year down the line you spend best part of fifty million pounds on this goalkeeper, and then he has the start that he's had, more questions are going to be asked. Even though it's a rite of passage, it feels like for most United number ones to have a pretty poor start. De Gea, De Gea in terms of the goals he's conceded um, after the same number of games as Anand, I think it's nine identical, if not the same. Uh, Mason Mount looks a questionable signing, and already you wonder if that's a long road back for him, just because what I'm. Other number sevens before him, the real ducks, Di Maria, Depay, um, Cavani, who else? I'm, I'm missing one or two here, I think. Uh, but players of that ilk, they actually started better for United than, than Mason Mount has. Uh, Rasmus Hoyland as well. United said they got their number one target. They didn't. Their number one target would have been Harry Kane, and they didn't go anywhere near him in the end because they've not got the financial muscle and they didn't want to deal with Daniel Levy. So there will be... That even though they got those three players in before August, pretty much, which is pretty good going still, that there's still this caveat with each one that Ratcliffe, I, I suspect, will take a dim view of. And it will be interesting to see what changes are made, if there are any made. I think there have to be anyway. I think if he's coming in, he's, he's going to want to oversee tangible change. You look at what Nice, who are owned by Ineos, they're second in... Liga at the moment, still early days, they're above PSG, but they hired a new chief executive and a new sporting director last year and they've revamped their recruitment strategy. They were they seem to be just stockpiling Premier League rejects like Ross Barkley, Kasper Schmeichel, Aaron Ramsey, and they've got rid of them. They've gone for a younger squad. It's starting to pay dividends already. Uh, they're second in the table behind Monaco. And when you look at Richard Arnold, who came into United in 2007, no two ways about it, he's a Glazer acolyte. He's a Glazer man. And although the Glazers are still there, you would imagine Ratcliffe will look at that and think, well, I've hired a new chief executive at Nice. You know, maybe it's time that we hired a new one at United. I think John Murta is probably vulnerable as well, even though Ratcliffe came out with that comment about dumb money in, in 2019 and Murta was made football director in in March 2021. He has been at United for 10 years and he's been involved heavily in in recruitment before he took the football director role. You know, he'd be meeting Alexis Sanchez at Manchester Airport and chaperoning him to, to Carrington for his medical. <laughs> I mean, he should have smashed the piano up, I think, really, rather than putting it out for him. Uh, I, I think there are other figures at the club. Uh, Ellie Norman, who what's her, her role again it's like head of comms or something like that and she's 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 well no she arrived last year she's based in the south and you, you rarely see her and she certainly doesn't communicate very often with 
um, us guys who are, who are covering the club, which is strange for a communications officer. And there are others who've been hired on the Glazers' watch who have been keeping their powder dry, uh, probably in the hope in some ways that the Glazers might stick around, but I think they're, they're on thin ice. And look, I, I think since Arnold's been made chief executive, he, he has cultivated a more autonomous culture so that the heads of departments can <coughs> run them the way they want to and take take leadership and take ownership of those um uh, th- th- those those departments as well. Whereas Ed Woodward was, I mean, he was spinning plates. He was trying to do the commercial stuff. He was trying to do the football stuff. It didn't work, and he was a disaster. Uh, he was a specialist in failure, as the as the banner said that time. But still, I, I think mud does stick, and the way the Mason Greenwood situation was was dealt with, um, I think that, that not so much the honeymoon period with Arnold, but he he su- he he has suffered reputational damage as a consequence of that. And United cannot tolerate um, such bad reputational damage. I mean, they've they've had Greenwood and I think the fallout from that, the way they dealt with it in terms of what they were informing us, um, the, the tone they struck was completely wrong. The Anthony situation as well, I think they've handled that better. Um, and there's, again, in terms of the nuance of it, where he's not been arrested or detained, that's why they've brought him back into the squad. But some of the things Ten Hag was saying about him in press conferences were just not publishable because they were so inaccurate. So you have to raise questions about that. Ten Hag absolutely should be backed. I don't think anybody, don't think anyone in the media um, or, or the press have, have even floated the possibility that he should be sacked whatsoever. And Ratcliffe has got to, you know, provided he comes in sooner rather than later... I think there's got to be backing for him. But there's certainly a lot of departments where you look at it and you think that is not in ship shape. That could do with change. Does it not have the potential to upset the apple cart a bit, though, Tyrone? Because if you look at Ted Hogg's signings, every single one of them have got his fingerprints on. We've talked about this Dutch pedigree that he likes and his former players that he likes to bring in. And we've also talked about the need for aligned recruitment, long-term, a long-term plan, a vision, something sustainable. But if that comes in, right, if Radcliffe comes in and installs that, surely that's going to contrast to what Ten Hag wants, to an extent. You'd, you'd like to think Ten Hag could operate within that framework, but if he's had two years of getting everything he wants, to an extent, he didn't get Harry Kane or these major signings, but a big influence on these names, and then Radcliffe comes in and goes, hang on a minute, I'd like you to operate like this, could that potentially upset the apple cart a bit? I, no, I don't think so. I think that contrast exists at, at every football club, really. The manager wants to win tomorrow. The owners want to win tomorrow and look at what comes next and, and long term it should be they should be able to work together for for that. At Liverpool under Klopp when it started out I guess that was one where they both looked in vision in terms of building for the future but they ended up with a a squad of an aging squad certainly but did win in that time frame. You look at Chelsea now they're clearly looking to the future and have probably got a manager who fits that but you know, I, I don't think there's necessarily going to be an issue there. And I don't think you know, I don't think it's realistic for Manchester United to look into the future too much. It's too you know, it's too simplistic to say United should have signed Caicedo from Ecuador, they should sign this player first, that player first, because it's it's totally different. Caicedo went into Brighton and was given time to develop and time to learn his trade. You just don't get that at Man United. Caicedo wouldn't have gotten the United team 
to start off with and might never have got in the United team and might have been sold for £10 million. It's just, it's a reality for the big clubs that they, they can't operate like that. It's very easy to point at Brighton and Brentford and say, this is what you need to be doing. But they are doing that to be successful for Brighton or Brentford. That is not success for Manchester United. Success for Manchester United is winning and winning now, this season and next season. And of course, you need to have an eye on the future as well as the present. And I think we've seen that more this summer. You know, I, I said a lot on this podcast last year that my biggest reservation with Kane was his age and that it was an ageing squad and an ageing spine. That has, that has changed this year with De Gea going and Anana coming in with Mason Mount coming in, with Hoyland as the striker coming in. You only have to look at Casemiro this season to realise that if they'd assigned Kane, you have that ageing profile of a team. And very quickly, it can just go like that and go wrong and players can start declining. So, of course, you need an eye on both. But football managers at the level of Ten Hag and, and people operating at that level should be able to do both. And I think, to a degree, we're seeing that now with United and that there's a squad there to, that should be capable of winning things really not the title maybe at the moment it clearly needs more more in terms of that and I guess Hoyland Hoyland is an example of it he's a he's a signing kind of for the future as well as the present but in the present he's not enough for United to win the league the, the that development is two or three years down the line but you know I think I think the two should be able to to work together really I don't I don't think it needs to cause friction but uh, you know the biggest issue if they were to look at, at John Murta's role say I mean the biggest issue for John Murta is that He's football director, yet the sense is that Ten Hag just gets what he wants. Because, as we've said, the, the signings all fit a profile. It, you know, it's not great for Ten Hag that he's had to answer questions about the involvement of his own agents. He signed, you know, half the players maybe that he's worked with or that he knows. Kevin Holland. Voss FC. Yeah, Keys Voss. Keys Voss. Yeah. Kevin Voss. Kevin, Kevin Voss. That's the, uh, the council estate version of, of Keys Voss. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Voss. <laughs> Jesus. I apologise to anyone who's called Kevin that's listening to this podcast. There's nothing wrong with that name. Yeah, so it's not, you know, it's not great to answer those questions. And there is a sense, you know, if the recruitment starts to look more negative, that's going to reflect badly on Murta because there's a sense that he's just kind of given Ten Hag what he wants when the job of a football director is probably to manage what the manager wants and give him a little bit of that, but also say, right, well, this is, this, you know, this is the target we're going for here rather than this player that you want and, and you know. I think there was only one player I can think of that United outright vetoed a move for that Ten Hag recommended, which was Hakim. No? Oh, well, they bid for Arnaldsvich. Oh, they just withdrew yeah, yeah, because it was the, the fan back that shit was uh, Hakim Ziyech, who is about as Ten Hag a player as you get in that he plays under him at Ajax and he was, he, nobody, let's face it, outside the Netherlands, outside Morocco, not many people had heard of Hakim Ziyech. Um, and I was told at the time that United did their due diligence on him and they got feedback and the feedback was unflattering, speaking to people who knew him. And I was thinking, well, you've got the manager there um, who, who's managed him. He, he, you're not just going off his say-so. So that that is the proof that they don't just always go on Ten Hag say-so, but that's that's a rarity. I mean, I think the, the recruitment department last year had, again, pushed for Paul Torres as the left-footed centre-back and... Ten Hag was like, no, I want Lissandra Martinez. And of course, United signed Martinez, which nobody has complained about whatsoever, really. Uh, obviously, you said Ten Hag works very closely with John Murder, but is it too early to speculate who could maybe be brought in in a sporting director, football director role? There's been named Michael Edwards at Liverpool. Ty, you've mentioned he's very sought after. He's got a big, big reputation. 
Paul Mitchell is another name who's been linked. He's been at Old Trafford. And he lives in Monaco, I think. <laughs> there you go. So is, is that too early or...? I don't think it's too early. I mean, they, they need to be looking for best in class. The, the dynamic there is fascinating because Ineos have a sporting director who's Sir Dave Brailsford. Now, the prospect of him having... He was, he was with Ratcliffe when they went to Old Trafford in March. The prospect of him, you know, overseeing football matters with Manchester United, OK, with Nice, Nice are doing quite well, but Nice, uh, they are a you know, pretty provinci- borderline provincial club in Liga with very little history. Compared to Manchester United, scrutiny is going to be a, a fraction of that. And Brailsford is... I mean, he's a polarising figure in that he had great success. His, his, his forte is cycling with Team Sky when he was the team principal when they were winning the Tour de France year after year after year, and also with British Cycling when they were cleaning it up at the 2012 Olympics in London and, and the Olympics beforehand as well when they became like the probably the world powerhouse in cycling. But there was the doping controversy where you had Dr Richard Freeman um, struck off the... Uh, medical register uh, because he he handled uh, banned substances. Well, that, that'll be good for all the injuries, won't it? Anyways, well, that's a that's a joke. You think of Dave Brailsford, and there's the the pro, there's the pros of him overseeing this extremely successful time. There's the yeah the, the doping controversy with what happened to uh, Doctor Richard Freeman, and also the use of therapeutic use exemptions that Team Sky used. Bradley Wiggins used one um, before he he won the tour in in 2012. So ethically, that's that's that should concern um, some people. Brailsford is, you know, I, it was interesting reading David Walsh's column in the Sunday Times yesterday. David Walsh, I mean, he, he obviously exposed Lance Armstrong, and then I think it was seen as quite ironic that he was commissioned to do a book on Team Sky. He did. And then he felt like he'd been duped. I think he even said a few years ago that Wiggins' Tour de France win should have an asterisk against it. And he was very, very critical in this lacerating piece on Brailsford um, on, on Sunday, where, he, I mean, with, with Ian Eos Grenadiers, who that's the name of Team Sky now, he, he pretty much said they were spent force and it's all because of Brailsford who's, who's dropped the ball. So, um, again, there's, there's, although that he will not be the Manchester United director of football, there'll be someone, well, unless it's Murta still, there'll be someone in that position who's not Brailsford that person would report into Brailsford. So it's interesting to see what will happen there um, because I wonder what input is. It's a guy who who came, who came, was at the Manchester Velodrome a few years ago. How's he going to be the guy to transform Manchester United into a, into a title winning side again or, or Champions League winners in the near future? There's been a little bit of recent success with Nice, but I don't think any United fan will care really what... What's going on at Nice? I think it's more the fact that Nice have made key changes at, um, with the chief executive and the new sporting director coming in. I think the sporting director came from Lons, who of course qualified for the Champions League this season and beat Arsenal the other week. Um, so it was more those those hires that have been behind their recent fillet rather than you know, Brailsford's input necessarily. I once went on a school trip to Lons and it was only there for 24 hours. We got the bus down all the way from the northeast of England to bloody Lons on a bus. 
Can you imagine what that was like? I don't know why I thought that was a good idea. You were in Lons for what, two hours yeah, and on the yeah, bus for Yeah, literally it was like five hours. hours. I did get a Lons t-shirt though, a t-shirt, a football shirt. I got a name on the back, I can't remember who. We had those day trips as well, but obviously we were going in from Kent, which is across yeah, the channel. Cool. So You're basically in France at that yeah, point. Not, not far off. Um, are there any more concerns with Ratcliffe's bid then, Tyrone? I mean, Samuel's just kind of touched upon them there. And he's said he doesn't really think his record at Nice is that significant. Um, but when you look into it a bit, close as time in these it looks like they've been learning on the job i think it's fair to say and will that help him at united because he's already made his mistakes i think the expectations are very different across both um but he's his heart is clearly in the right place as much as there's all this criticism that he's he's not a united fan he's a chelsea season ticket holder and and whatnot his heart is on the right place in terms of he is from manchester there is clearly an affinity with united there um and he does have this this passion for sport. You know, a, a decade ago, no one had heard of Sir Jim Ratcliffe. He was uh, he was Britain's richest man, or one of Britain's richest men, and no one knew who he was. People know who he is now, and he's got this profile because of the sporting investments. Team Sky, Nice, uh, sponsoring Mercedes, Formula One team, Ben Ainsley in the America's Cup. And all of this stuff is, is supposedly being driven by Sir Jim Ratcliffe because he's a billionaire who who wants to get involved in sport now and, and have fun and it's it's brought him this this profile and I think he's he's said in one of his interviews of the times that he's got you know it's it's a passion for sport he's he's doing things that he's got a passion for now which is a good place to be and I guess if you're a billionaire it'd be nice to to be able to do that um so you know the the, the obvious difference between him and the Glazers is that he cares and we know that they don't really so you know I think there's I think the concerns are around the minority ownership, what comes next. One, by, by no longer being this recluse that he was 10, 15 years ago, he's got this public profile now. He's done lots of interviews. He's, you know, when he, when he came to Old Trafford, you know, it was no coincidence that the cameras were there to greet him back in March. He's got this more public profile. One of the first things he should be doing when the deal's ratified by the board is, is speaking through whichever medium he uses, but explaining how it's going to work, how he sees it going forward and, you know, explaining what he can. It's an obvious lesson to learn from the Glazers in, in terms of communication. And I think if fans heard from him, if they got a sense of that roadmap of where he sees it going and what, what influence he can have, then some of those concerns may be, may be quelled. But there is, you know, the, the, the concerns for now are fairly obvious that the Glazers still own a large chunk of this football cloth and, Ratcliffe is, is a minority stakeholder, so that's, you know, until, until we know the intricacies of how it's going to work, that's, that's where the concern lies. Last question then, Tyrone. Who dresses better, Sir Jim Ratcliffe or Samuel Luckhurst? It's a dreadful question. <laughs> well, from what I've seen of Sir Jim Ratcliffe, he's a bit, he, Samuel's like a very, Samuel's smart, isn't he? He goes for the suit. Oh, I, I think, see Sir Jim in a, a few I think Ratcliffe's yeah. a, dress, a dresser down, isn't he? Oh, okay, fair enough, a bit more casual. He looks smart when he went to Old Trafford. With... He did. Well, Samuel always looks smart when he goes to Old Trafford, to be fair, so... Sometimes you should take some uh, pages of his book. I think, type. <laughs> anyways, anyways, that's it for part two. We'll be back in a moment for part three. Welcome back to part three of the Manchester is Red podcast. And I'm sure you'd be relieved to hear we're not going to talk about fashion anymore. Uh, Samuel, priorities for Ratcliffe then coming into the club. I think we talked about this 
God, maybe six months ago. They're going to say six minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Just repeating ourselves over and over again. No, but if you had to narrow it down, I remember asking you guys, like, narrow it down to five priorities. Well, what is the most pressing matters? You've got the redevelopment of Old Trafford, that's huge. The roof is continuing to leak, that needs to be addressed. Um, first team recruitment we've talked about. The training ground, it has been improved. There have been investment at Carradine, but it could be better. What would you say would be on the top of Ratcliffe's agenda coming into the club? I suspect for, from his perspective, it's to have a, a winning team. I still think that, I still think the stadium takes should take precedence uh, because... What would your reaction be if he comes in and says, look, we want that winning team and we're going to put the redevelopment of Old Trafford on the back burner? I think that would be a mistake. I don't think you can... I think fans are sick and tired of hearing that. I mean, the, the, the cat was let out of the bag a few years ago when just before the... I think it was the April 2019 derby and you had that waterfall gushing down... Uh, from the the Stratford end roof and the amazing thing was in the fans forum the following year when the guy spoke about it like the the stadium manager or whatever it was he actually referenced the wrong roof <laughs> he was going on, he was going on about an, um, another roof I think at the other end of the ground and and that one didn't have a leak that night and I when I saw this clip I, I tweeted like how just what a dreadful it's symbolic state isn't it, was. it really of the yeah case, yeah it, it's always been an easy intro really. And um, the, the director of comms at the time came out in the press box like a bit, but he, he had a measured way about it and in like, dis, you know, trying to take, he, was, he took umbrage with it effectively. And I just said, look, you, you got, this was three days after they got trounced 4-0 by Everton at Goodson Park. I said, look, this is going on, that's going on. You know, it's, you know, fr- frankly, it's a shit show really. And he said, well, the fans want, they want new signs, they want a new stadium, they can't have it both ways. And I thought, that's, that's it. They're never going to get a new stadium and also have a team that has had sufficient investment on the watch of the current owners, which just confirmed everything that many, most, if not everyone, had suspected for, for a long time. Now, with somebody new coming in, it does raise the question of whether that is possible. And I know with the transfer market now, there are financial fair play matters which United go on about ad nauseum, but at least they are abiding by that. And they're quite keen as well to point out, point out that they will comply with financial fair play matters, i.e. unlike the other lot in Manchester, where we've got 115 charges against them from, from the Premier League. But the stadium... It was best in class until about 15 years ago, maybe, in fact, longer than that. And the fact that it's not going to be a stadium for the Euros in 2028 is an embarrassment, no matter how the the, the club tried to spin it, that, oh, you know, that we're not sure what revamp will happen and there's still uncertainty over that and that's why we decided not to... um, not to go in for it. It's embarrassing that the biggest club stadium in the country and probably the most famous club stadium in the country is not going to be hosting European Championship matches. That is a sad indictment on the running of Manchester United and, and the neglect that's been allowed to happen there. And I get it that there'll be concerns from supporters, possibly supporters who don't necessarily go to Old Trafford very often, that they'll look at Arsenal, what happened when they moved to the Emirates Stadium, and they moved there in 2006 and then they didn't win a trophy until... 2014 I think it was when they won the FA Cup and everybody knew that the cost of the Emirates Stadium had impacted their success on the pitch Tottenham have got possibly the best football stadium in the world they've still not won anything since the 2008 League Cup 
They're doing very well at the moment. I still suspect that there'll come a point where, because of you know, it's quite a thin squad and and whatnot, that they will fall away. And it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever if they have another trophyless season. They've already come out of the League Cup. They've not got European football. I don't think anybody expects them to win the Premier League. So it's pretty much all on the FA Cup. And chances are there'll be a couple of other teams, big hitters, who'll, who'll win that ahead of them. So I get the concern in that you should... I, I get the argument that you've got to prioritise the team. It's always got to be the team. And that has been the way United have operated pre and post... Sorry, not pre and post Ferguson, but during Ferguson's time under the Glazers and also since Ferguson left, that there's been huge investment in the squad. Nobody can... I know there's a lot of nuance to it and there have been summers where the spending plummeted and there were serious issues with that, particularly in 2018, when you really realised that something was fundamentally wrong uh, between manager and, and the hierarchy at the club. But they have... Um, Richard Arnold said it best. He said they burned through a billion in cash and they have done. And they're going to have to be very careful the way they spend it now because of the sustainability, profitability rules um, from the Premier League and FFP with, with UEFA as well. And it's it's good that United will comply with that, but they have got to start spending in better ways because already this summer they got a bit of stick over the mountain deal. I thought that was a bit harsh. I think 50, overall £60 million, given his profile, I thought that was fair, even though I didn't think they should have Tenard gone for that. Including add-ons, he spent over £400 million now during his reign. Yeah, it's, they've, he's had unprecedented backing at United. And as I said earlier, his his hit rate in in recruitment, and this is his team, let's, let's face it. I mean, there have been a lot of desperate attempts to try and absolve him of blame for their start to the season. He, he is heavily accountable for it. It's, it's easy just to do a Gary Neville and blame the Glazers after they've got thumped at home by Brighton. But, it, it, you know, it, the Glazers are not playing Scott McTominay on the right of a midfield diamond and trying to implement a, a new formation on the fly. Um, Ten Hag has to take accountability for that. But I still think United need to present themselves as a different image to what they are under the Glazers. And I think that's why it's beneficial for Ratcliffe that if you do up Old Trafford and it's an, it, it feels like a new stage and you go to it and it's, it, 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 you know, it's, it's all about it. It's got to be like a new era. And maybe that might, won't be possible while he's still, you know, I suppose to the cynical phrase would be to, in cahoots with the Glazers because he's... He's going to, you know, he's he's going to be a minority um, stakeholder. But I, I just have we go to the stadium twice a month, three times a month, whatever it is, and you feel you feel sorry for the supporters who who pay an awful lot of money, and it's not it's not good enough. It still has that aura, and I think most football grounds have that aura. Even Selhurst Park, you, when you go out in the open there, you. You really do relish the pure, the, the pureness of it because it's a football ground. I think you'll always have that buzz of stepping out into a football ground and out into the open. And Old Trafford is still a place that you know people you know gape at when they come up to their seat or um, emerge from the tunnel, and that's because of the history of the place. But it's been it's been neglected, and they've they've got to get that in ship shape they've they've got to present a new image of manchester united and i think at times the the squad will take care of itself in a way i know that sounds a bit daft because they've had some pretty dreadful seasons over the last 10 years but even in the worst season 
um, in, in, in decades under Solskjaer and Rangnick, the, the season only really technically ended in in um, in early May. That was the point where they couldn't get in the top four any longer. So they still had, even that dreadful team still had something to play for, even though a lot of them had checked out. They still had something to play for going into May, which is surreal, but that, that was the reality. Still finished with West Ham that season. Do you remember me telling you that story about the better place? about United to finish with West Ham the following season. I went, if Manchester United can finish with West Ham in the worst season for decades. The best West Ham team the, in decades. The there you United go, you put team. it like that. Exactly. So it was easy money really, wasn't it? It was for you, yeah. Uh, do you feel as strongly as, as Samuel about that matter than Tyro and the stadium being such a priority? Because I guess it could be argued, as Samuel said, if the team's winning and the success on the pitch, are people going to really notice that much? Are people going to really care? Because um, it has become quite symbolic of the, the Glazers' reign. Uh, I mean, we've talked about the leaking roof. Even you talked about the, the mix zone last week. It's, it's an awful mix zone. It's not a proper mix zone, is it? Compared to... It's not a mix zone. Well, like, there <laughs> you go, like, there you go. So, and I mean, that's small fry, really, because that's what we're talking about, that as journalists, and the fan experience obviously counts more. But there's obviously huge concerns with the stadium. Yeah, there is. I, I mean, I would say the priority is both. This, this is Manchester United. Why can't it be both? I think you can build a successful team while renovating the stadium as well. I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think the stadium is clearly a big priority and that should start as soon as possible. You know, from what we're told, there is a range of options ready to go as soon as they make a decision. So let's make a decision and get on with it. Um, but uh, that can go hand in hand with investing on the pitch and, and building a team for me. I don't, I don't really see why it has to be one or the other. But, you know, we, we spoke about it on... Um, Friday's podcast, I think it was me and Rich on Friday, but you know, as Samuel said, the the whole twenty twenty eight thing is is disastrous for United, really. You know, I, I painted an example then of a, a supporter that could come to Manchester for Euro twenty twenty eight and they'd stay at their new hotel on site at the Etihad, they go to a game at the Etihad, they do the tourist skywalk at the Etihad, they go to a gig at the Etihad at the uh, co-op arena at which city are the largest stakeholders what's Manchester City's uh, stadium called they fly in through, they fly in <laughs> yeah, with yeah. Etihad <laughs> Etihad, Etihad, Etihad but that just shows that that's you know, that's a stadium that's got so many attractions it, that's got everything you could you could come to a game there for Euro 2028 and like I say do a tourist attraction do a gig stay at the hotel sit you're making money off all of that um, and they're developing they're developing the stadium at the moment and invested in the team in the summer they've got a, 300 million pound redevelopment which will include a fan zone for 3,000 supporters so they have got every box ticked there and that's what United need to aspire to and United that, that Old Trafford is a huge footprint United could do all of that they just don't want to under the Glazers they just haven't been bothered because it involves spending money they've shown no interest in it so they, they could achieve that and the fact that they basically had to say we can't guarantee that the roof won't be leaking in 2028 so we can't have a European Championship game it's embarrassing for uh, for Manchester United and it you know it, it shows I read this last week it shows two clubs in Manchester going in opposite directions and that's the trend that needs to be reversed and clearly the stadium is a huge part of that somebody mentioned the fans forum before there was a fans forum again last week and once again the roof leaking was a part of it that's five years on they're still talking about we're looking at how to fix a leaking roof I mean, I, I was I was told as soon as link, link, links links are identified, they're fixed immediately. And I mean, that's a bit dubious, isn't it? Really, when you saw all the videos and stuff that have emerged over the years. I think another reason why there needs to be tangible change when we spoke to some people at the club and on the tour, and one of our colleagues 
actually said, are you not worried what they're doing up the road, expanding the stadium? And they, they didn't seem worried. And that alone is the reason why you need fundamental change at the club. I talked about the priorities. I mean, it's such a simple thing to do, but communication has to be up there, doesn't it? On the top of the agenda, because there's been such a lack of communication. And that's a huge frustration for, for supporters. It's such a simple thing, but it means a lot. Yeah, well, when if, if this is ratified this week, Ratcliffe has got to come out quite quickly and, and address key questions, whether that's through the club, which they'll be restricted in terms of what they ask him. So I think sometimes those exercises are, are, are pretty pointless. Um, I think he needs to be you know, as clear and transparent as possible and, and just yeah, arrange for for a rendezvous or, or, or a sit down where he, he will be asked every relevant key question uh, that, that fans would want to ask him and answer it as cogently as possible so he can give, you know, outline his, his clear clear vision for United because I don't think a press release would just suffice. And as Ty said, he has done a fair few interviews in recent years about sports adventures, rereading Matt Dickinson's interview with him four years ago. I think one of the first paragraphs notes that how happy he was to do this interview because it was about sport and it wasn't about fracking which is obviously another um, topic of discussion that I don't think any of us are, are experts on but you know, provokes at, you know, outcry from, from a lot of members of the public so he, he's clearly quite comfortable speaking about football. Those pictures of him at Old Trafford in March, they're the only pictures on file of Jim Ratcliffe at Old Trafford. It's like how many times have you been to Old Trafford? How regular match go were you? He he said he was at Camp Nou for the Champions League final in '99, but you know, in the Barcelona he, apparently, <laughs> in a Barcelona show. <laughs> he's he's gonna have to he's gonna have to connect with with match goers, and it's it's an easy win for him. It's an open goal. He was born in Failsworth, um, Greater Manchester, Manchester United fan, seeking to become the you know the, the owner of the club. It's it's a pretty good story if it all comes together, but I suspect there are you know a few more obstacles yet to uh, to navigate. If he shows that he cares, it can only go down well. It's such a simple thing, but it goes a long way. Yeah. It does. Uh, thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And thanks to listeners as usual. I'm always told to plug our socials, so head across to TikTok. Samuel, are you a TikTok man? I asked Tyrone last I week. heard this on last week's podcast. Are you a TikTok man? Unsurprisingly, I'm not. <laughs> no. My dad is, unbelievably. He's, he's on it. I, don't, I, I pray that he's not. <laughs> Doing dances <laughs> and yeah, whatnot. Jesus. And, yeah. um, obviously, YouTube channel as well, ticking across nicely with the subscribers. But we'll be back to look ahead to the weekend where Manchester United are playing Sheffield United at Bramall Lane. Take care.